we know that our costume is right, for example, or we know that our pre-performance routine um, is going to be consistent to the best of our ability, or you know, we think that we know our selves and, and do we really need to uh, psych ourselves up for a show? Do we need to be that kind of jokey, relaxed thing? These are things that I, I, I were never taught to me in my professional training, but they're things you understand, you just kind of learn as you go along. But there's something else there. And I, I wanted to get inside what that is. What what can, um, when everything else apparently is exactly the same, what is it that makes the difference to somebody's ability to perform? Well, hello to you all and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, the Supporting Champions podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who've supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. And now to this week's guest. And what we've got for you this week is a fascinating insight into the world of ballet. And we've always been super keen to learn from diverse fields. Sport is definitely not the reference point for all things performance. That's something I've learned since we set up Supporting Champions and began to apply performance thinking to business education and the performing arts. This week's guest is Kit Holder, first soloist at the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Kit has spent his whole career dancing. He danced as a child, he went to the Royal Ballet School and has performed at the highest level on stage and now is a choreographer for the Birmingham Company. There's a number of interesting angles that I took from this interview. One that he is working to the direction of a new boss, the world-renowned Carlos Acosta, finding out how the style, the manner and expectations changes with that new direction. Kit also shares an interesting hurdle he overcame where a particular routine and section caused a real performance blocker for him, and he shares how he overcame this limiting inhibition. Fascinating still how this experience has also propelled him to study more about the psychology of performance. Now, Kit also shares his insights into choreography, nurturing others, directing, and inspiring and co-creating works with other dancers. Well, very warm welcome to the podcast. Kit, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good. Now tell me, uh, tell me, Birmingham Royal Ballet, where, where are you at? What's, what's happened? Are you, how are you coping? Are you, I presume you're all closed and shut down during the lockdown. been an interesting one for us. We were in the middle of a national tour of Swan Lake, which obviously is a, a big successful production. We have a very good production of it and it's a big uh, audience ballet for us. Uh, and we were kind of watching the situation develop. We were watching sporting events getting cancelled and we were going, surely it's, you know, it's only a matter of time for us. Um, we were waiting for the government to make that call or for our venues to make that call. Uh, obviously, there are financial implications for us as an organisation. If we just pull shows, we're liable for the costs that are incurred from doing that. Um, but as the, as the concern grew... So did the anxiety around that. Um, so the last performances that we did were 
in Sunderland. We did a show on a Saturday in Sunderland. We came home. We came back into our base on the Monday in Birmingham. And we had a, a kind of unscheduled meeting um, with our chief executive and so on. And they said, look, we've decided that the best thing we can do now, we've got a two-week gap between performances where we were just going to be rehearsing uh, for that show and also for things that were scheduled to be happening later in our season. And they said, look, go home. What we're going to do is we're going to change our scheduling of classes and rehearsals to keep uh, as few people in the studios at any given time as we can. And um, that was the Monday. Then the following day was when Boris Johnson started uh, talking about social distancing and, and making that the new way that we were doing things. Um, and at that point, they said, look, don't come to work. We'll find ways to um, give you classes from home. Um, and like everyone else, we started to discover Zoom calling and so on uh, for training at that point. And we have the so it was the, a week after that, I think, wasn't it, that we went into lockdown as a nation. And we have continued doing our classes that way. Um, we have been just watching the situation unfold. We've had to pull some of our shows and we're, we're watching the situation very closely now to see when we'll be able to get back into theatres. Um, and of course, before that, when we'll be able to get back into the studio to start rehearsing for those performances. So it's a, it's an un, a little bit of an unknown at the moment when we're just losing um, performances and, and losing opportunities to connect with our audiences. I was really looking forward to um, a performance we were going to do at the Latitude Festival in July. It was a, a really good gig for us, if you like, and I was, uh, I was choreographing a, a performance for that that I was really excited about. It's something I'd been developing for a couple of years and this was going to be the what we hoped would be the perfect platform for that particular show. And of course, that event is not going to happen now. And it throws a lot of things up in the air for us. You know, will will that performance ever happen? Will we be able to go back to that festival next year when that happens? It's it's a very difficult situation, of course, as mm. it is for everyone. Yeah, I can I can appreciate that, that certainly you'll be planning not only just the, the next performance but the one after that the one after that and and with the uncertainty of of whether those things will happen I mean it's un, perhaps unlike uh, sporting events such as the Olympics or Euro 2021 they'll probably happen or they'll probably happen at some point whereas here what you're talking about is is an uncertainty as to whether they will happen absolutely and um, uh, there's a difference of course um, that those big international events will have a huge number of people traveling across the world and congregating in in a, a single country or, or across various countries in huge numbers in those venues uh, sadly our numbers of audience aren't quite as big as that um, but they probably necessitate fewer people traveling huge distances it's been really interesting for me to uh, observe my own motivation at this point um, and I, I you know I have some friends who are um, hoping to, to be at the Olympics so it was a, an interesting period for them of course looking to see is this going to happen, is this not and then as soon as it was called off and, and postponed we, they faced this question of okay so now how does that fit into to my planning you know we've suddenly got a five year Olympic cycle here that 
you know, in terms of the training and looking to peak at the right moment, that was very interesting. And now it's good for them that they've got a clear target. Uh, for us, we don't have that. And I found that for the first few weeks of this lockdown, I didn't have the motivation to train. Um, and certainly not on any kind of structured basis. Uh, so I'd go, oh yeah, no, I haven't done anything for a few days. I should really just go and do a, a suspension training session or something. Um, and my diet definitely suffered. <laughs> we, have <Yeah>. this, <laughs> we have this cupboard at home that's just collected all this um, chocolate and stuff that you receive as gifts at Christmas and so on. That You know, we, we're not um, uh, diet fanatics or anything, but it just doesn't really get eaten. Um, and I, I tucked quite heavily into that cupboard for a little while. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not a, really a drinker very much, but I found I was having a couple of glasses of wine every day and I just thought, this is really different. Um, so after a few weeks, I thought, well, I'm going to have to keep going because otherwise when we do come out of this situation, it's just, you know, will I ever get back to the fitness that I need to be? So that's kind of leveled out a little bit. And now I have um, some structure to my training and uh, and targets and I have I've seen an opportunity here as well um that of course I need to keep dancing and I need to keep my ballet technique up to standard um and and that's been a challenge in itself but um I'm a keen road cyclist and for the first time I've got this opportunity where I can actually shift a little bit of focus onto my cycling so I've I've I'm in the middle now of a 12-week program, which I never really... I've done similar types of program before, but it's always had to fit around my rehearsal and work schedule. And now I can kind of make sure that that happens um, as well as doing my daily ballet classes or, or anything else that I'm working on. And that's quite interesting. I've dropped five kilos now since we've been into lockdown. Um, wow. Yeah, which is just something... It's a... Uh, it's not a, a kind of weight or, or fat loss thing, I don't think. It's just my body is changing because um, I'm not in the gym as much lifting heavy weights. And I think the the muscles change to different parts of my body. I'm starting to look more so like a the, cyclist. Is that five kilograms before you started the cupboard binge uh, or after? <laughs> so did you put five kilos on from the chocolate and then lose it again? But it was interesting <laughs> that, I, I mean, I don't tend to weigh myself actually very often. Um, but I think it, weighing myself came in as um, something that I would do before and after heavy cycling sessions just as a way of um, of gauging my hydration, actually. Mm. Um, so my weight has always stayed fairly stable for years and years now, regardless of what I'm doing, and I think that's because my work is fairly consistent. Um, so my physical activity is quite consistent. What I found at the beginning of this lockdown is that it stayed quite consistent. And I think there was I was probably offsetting the muscle loss from not training with the same intensity by eating a, a lot more chocolate, mainly. <laughs> right. A couple of action points then. Send the chocolate over to me. I can sort that <laughs> one out for you. Uh, just just get it out of the house. That's, that's what you need to do. Um, so that's interesting. And it's all tr- it sounds like you have a level of of purpose and motivation behind your uh, road cycling uh, but you've got some shifts in body composition that might not necessarily lend itself well to 
ballet performance. I get, you know, for example, endurance cyclists do not tend to have much in the in the in the terms of deltoid mass or or shoulder strength. They just don't need it, and and yet they they have a level of muscle mass maintained by by the the sheer aerobic work they're doing. So are you conscious of of having to sort of offset that a little bit in your dance classes and practice and maybe other conditioning work that you're doing? Yes, is the short answer. Uh, or are you now? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've asked the question. <laughs> no, it's really interesting because um, because road cycling, of course, is a, is an endurance sport. And actually, what we do as dancers is not endurance work at all. Um, so if I were to, to track my heart rate during an average day, our our ballet class that we start every day is maybe you know say something like a 45 second exercise and then you stand around for two minutes while they're setting the next exercise and that's the basis that we work on so even as the class becomes more dynamic and we start moving more and jumping around the studio the actual active time is still very much short bursts and it's very similar actually in shows so uh, we might have something a longer uh, dance, maybe let's say five minutes of actual constant movement, and then you'll either go off stage or you'll go and stand at the side for a little bit and recover and then come back. So cycling, of course, is incredibly different to that. Mm. It has paid off in certain things. We have um, in our repertoire as a company, one of my favourite ballets to dance is a, a piece called In the Upper Room, by Twyla Tharp, she's an American choreographer, and it is unbelievably hard physically. Um, and it's not really ballet technique, so there's that side of it as a, a sort of uh, degree of being less familiar, so you can't rely on your technique in the same way as you would in, say, Swan Lake or, or something that's very classical. Um, and what surprised me is that I've done it several times over the years, and once I built up my fitness, if you like, as a cyclist, and I found that um, my recovery times and everything had dropped right down, my performance was was really improving, I found that performing that ballet still absolutely killed me. And it's obvious, of course, but I realised at that point that as your fitness ceiling goes up, your output goes up and you're still exhausted. Um, it's still killer. So even though I was uh, hopefully performing at a much higher level, I was still killing myself out there um, and still, you know, coming off stage and, and being on the verge of throwing up in the wing. Um, and that's when I really realised, you know, that the, the kind of specifics, if you like, of training that we need to do. And it's uh, hopefully standing me in good stead. You know, I'm in the 20th year as a professional now. And um, this is the kind of knowledge that I need to be able to keep mm. up with these sort of 19 year olds that I'm dancing alongside. Uh, I mean, I think it's a fascinating area and a real growth for the performing arts, physical performing arts and dance, but also we spoke to Emma Hatton in a previous podcast about musical theatre and and sustaining performance, having to turn it out every every night in the same way that a rock star will have to get fit for their tours and their stadium tours. I think that it's a growth area of of optimising human performance and I think it's an untapped area and so I'm fascinated by the by the demand that you are all under in ballet. All right. So um, so during lockdown, um, 
what pops up on my Twitter feed is Alone Together. Um, tell me about that. It's an, an amazingly beautiful piece. Uh, five dan- uh, five musicians, six dancers, I believe it is, um, and created a piece that, uh, that, that it was quite touching to watch that your compatriots in uh, in their own homes dancing a piece together. Yeah, well, we felt, um, as performers, we felt sort of almost a little bit shortchanged by just suddenly not being able to perform. Um, and, you know, we, we felt there was unfinished business with Swan Lake. You know, we hadn't finished that tour. Um, but in the basic sense, this is what we do. We dance and we perform. Um, we were a live performance company. We don't do a lot of video work. Um, we have our a wonderful orchestra, the Royal Ballet Symphonia, who tour with us. They play for all our performances. Very much part of our company. Um, so we're used to this kind of transactional situation where we perform, the audience respond. You know, and it's a it's a huge privilege. There's very few people who get applauded at the end of their day's work, you know. Um, and it's a buzz that, you know, all performers, I think, thrive on. And suddenly we're in a situation where we don't have that connection with our audience anymore. We're not able to to do that. And so we felt very, very quickly that we, we wanted to do something. We wanted to just demonstrate to our audience we're still here. We're still dancing. We're not going to we're not going to stop because of the physical restrictions we're starting to see all these companies just doing something and we wanted to do something that had a little bit more of a connection and was a little bit more cohesive um so and we also wanted to do it very very quickly so i designed um a series of short phrases which i sent out by video to some of our dancers and our director and our assistant director and i thought it was it was really nice to show the levels of the organisation there. So we had people through all the different ranks of dancer in the company and uh, obviously then the the senior artistic staff and some of our orchestra musicians. I didn't choreograph the musicians, um, but the dancers, what was really interesting to me in this process is that I sent out videos of the choreography and I had to say to them, this is a guide because I can't be in the room with you to rehearse this and to get the sort of precision. So it became uh, a very, very collaborative process in the remote sense, in that this is what I intend for you, but you have to take this and shape it and interpret it your own way. Um, So there was very little of that video where I had said, this movement happens in this exact way on this exact count. Um, But I think what you can see is that the movement hangs together because it's all come from the same um, origin. But it also gives space for for each of the artists involved to have their own input, which I think is part of the magic of it. Um, And of course, we learned a lot in the process. (laughs) And what we've subsequently seen is, you know, dance companies from all over the place doing similar videos. And it's a it's a wonderful thing. we found things that had frustrated our creativity in that process. And as I mentioned, we're not Mm. um, that familiar necessarily with making dance for film. 
So we worked, um, so I should say that a colleague and I had sort of coordinated this Alone Together film. That's Tom Rogers, who's a soloist with the company. And we worked with a filmmaker called Dan Lowenstein, who helped to guide us in that process. And um, off the back of that, we wanted to do something else where we could put the lessons that we learned along that process um, into practice. So we've actually just finished making a... It's not really a follow-up, it's just another film, um, which we think has um, higher production values and was uh, was we we sort of spent a lot more time uh designing and kind of storyboarding this short film so that we would then spend less time in the edit um so we were we were <laughs> a lot more specific about the shots that we wanted to do and the choreography was very very fixed um and fortunately for me i was able to work with two dancers who I've worked with quite a lot before as a choreographer. So even though I was still filming material and sending it to them and saying, this is the choreography, um, the places where I was limited in, in space or, or for whatever reason, they, they knew where I was coming from. They go, oh yeah, no, I've done Kit's work before. I know what he's, what he's getting mm. at there. There was, of course, still a degree of, um, of freedom for interpretation for those two dancers. But I think um, I'm quite excited about this film because I think it has a, a little more uh, depth that's there by design. In Alone Together, it was this, this uplifting and it was a very beautiful um, format to watch some really beautiful dancers do their thing. Um, but this, this has a little more to it and I can't wait to, can't wait to share it with the world, actually. Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to, looking forward to watching that. It sounds as though... You, you've almost by experimentation of why, why don't we give something back to the world? It sounds like you've learned something that actually could be quite useful to what you might be encountering in terms of learning together over the next couple of months too. Yeah, it's, um, I think everyone in every industry has learned some new ways of working uh, during this period. Of course, in the studio, I use video quite a lot anyway. Um, so when I'm choreographing, I would always try and record what I've done that day. So there's a record of it and I can go away and sort of evaluate it and make my own notes outside of the studio. And um, of course we we use it for technical reasons as well. So you can kind of self critique and so on. Um, But in terms of uh, this remote choreographic process, it's been quite interesting. Um, I err on the side of collaboration when I'm creating anyway. a lot of choreographers, of course, will kind of set a task, a creative task, where the dancers actually generate the movement, and then the choreographer will kind of arrange and shape that movement. I prefer to set the movement, but of course, in the process, somebody might do something, and you see it, and you go, yep, let's explore that. So you follow up that, and I like to, um, I like to allow the dancers to do that. And one of the things that's been interesting about working remotely in this way is that there's more scope for the dancers to do that kind of thing. Um, I'm lucky, of course, that the dancers I'm working with remotely on these kind of video projects, I know quite well, and I will have worked with them um, choreographically a lot. And of course, I I see them in whatever ballets we're working on at that period. So I I have a good sense of um, how they move and, and what their real strengths are. But it's also really nice to to give people the freedom to move in a way 
that they want to or to explore things in a particular way because of course in a ballet company we're a very very busy ballet company so you do get to see your colleagues dance a lot but of course you're given a role and you're told what to do and um, it doesn't necessarily show somebody um, in their best way actually you know having somebody dancing a, a solo from Swan Lake brilliantly doesn't necessarily reflect the full wealth of their abilities I think is what I'm trying to say so somebody might dance amazingly in a pair of point shoes and they could be equally fantastic uh, dancing in a pair of socks or, or bare feet without anything resembling a classical technique uh, so giving people the freedom in this way I think is interesting it, it can reveal some um, some real hidden abilities and qualities in a dancer and also I think there's probably something Certainly when you're in your, your professional context, you're going to your place of work, there are certain um, situational factors there that are going to influence the way that you behave, the way that you move um, and the way that you feel. So when you've got somebody in their own space at home, more or less working in their own time, I think that can uh, influence the quality of their movement as well and their creativity. So it's um, it's interesting. But at the end of the day, we can explore these things till the cows come home, but we still want to produce something that's worth it for an audience. You know, that's that's at the um, at the root of everything we do is that we're entertain we're an entertainment industry. Um, entertainment, of course, takes many forms. You can you can make people happy or sad or laugh. Um, you can provoke people. You can irritate people. Um, but we have to always think of the audience. That's really interesting. So that what I'm hearing there is that you've you've got a pressure or a responsibility to to the production, but also to the audiences of creating something that that conforms um, or that they might expect or that holds the tradition of a particular piece. But you're equally looking to create freedom or spontaneity that might surprise or delight for other reasons. And that seems like a, a balance to be struck. I guess if it's, if it's too radical, people wouldn't come again or they wouldn't, they wouldn't go to something that they know about. Uh, but equally, to have something that makes them gasp or be surprised is important too. Absolutely. And that's something that's very different about making um, videos for people to view in their own time, in their own space. When we have an audience in a theatre, they're essentially captive for that point. So they've sat down and they're there until the interval. You know, unless they may be on the aisle and they really hate it and they can leave halfway through. But um, <laughs> they're kind of stuck there for, for 20, 25 minutes. Um, and so in that sense, you kind of have them in the palm of your hand. But with a video, if they don't love the first five, ten seconds, they'll just skip it. They'll turn it off. They'll scroll mm. through their feed to the next thing. Um, I can't remember the exact figures, but some of the information that you get when you post these films on social media reveals actually how much of the video people have watched. And it's something like, um, I think on Facebook for these things, the average for a video is about three or four uh, seconds, something like that, before people move on. We, with the Alone Together film, surpassed that hugely. 
and I think the numbers of people that watched the entire video just far surpassed our expectations. It was a, a, a real success on those terms. Now, it's quite disheartening when you look at those figures because it would be something like, oh, 8% of people that started watching actually finished it, and you're going, oh, that's awful, until you realise that actually the normal would be something like 2 or 3% mm. or of any video that's on Facebook in, in anywhere in the world. So... Um, put in that context we were actually very very pleased with the engagement of that film uh well please keep up uh production of that it's it's it, um when you look at a clip of an interview of somebody or of some information or someone's proposed an idea you you listen to it as you say for a few seconds and you either think right i've got the gist or that's not for me but what i loved about that piece um not that my feedback's going to count for anything but it was immersive and it was one of those where you you put you down tools. You don't do anything, right? This is to one to soak up. That that feels like it's it's in a different category of online material for um, that people can enjoy during this time. Let me let me ask you about your journey into ballet, and so can you give me your sort of your biog and your your history into ballet and um, and where where you've come from and and how you progress? Sure. So. Um I grew up outside Birmingham. Um, I had I'm the youngest child in the family, um, and I had two older brothers who, by the time I showed up in the world, were already taking dance classes locally. Um, so I I always say it's sort of convenient for parents to take their children all to the same place, you know, for after school activities or, or weekends. So it's something for me that I have always done. Um, and I think as well, like, like many children, you, you look up to your siblings and they are invariably a model of some kind. Um, so I really just followed that. Um, and my older brother went off at 16 to vocational school in London, um, which is, is fairly late for people that then go into professional ballet careers. Um, and, uh, I I thought it was great, you know, he was off doing really exciting things and he subsequently danced in Berlin and he danced in uh, Scotland with the Scottish Ballet for a long time. Um, my other brother went to vocational school at 11 and then he went off uh, to Switzerland when he was 16 to continue his dance training there and then he worked um, in a couple of companies in Europe. He'd worked for a long time in a, a brilliant company in Holland. Um, so both my brothers got to the end of their dance career and got a sort of proper job, if you like. Um, but I, uh, I wanted to do this. And what happened, and it's kind of a fortuitous thing for me, was when I was eight years old, the company that up until that point had been known as Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet and had always toured through Birmingham um, and my parents had taken us to watch that company, they actually moved to Birmingham and made Birmingham their home. At that point, they became the Birmingham Royal Ballet. They had um, studios, brilliant studios built just behind the Hippodrome Theatre in Birmingham. And crucially for me, at that point, they began a weekly junior associate programme where uh, I would go on a Saturday afternoon and take ballet classes. Uh, so I started that in the September term 
and in December, the Birmingham Royal Ballet performed a brand new production of The Nutcracker, which required children. So I was taken um, into that production and loved it. I loved everything about being involved in it. I thought it was the best thing ever. Um, and I also performed that for, for two subsequent Christmas seasons. And um, when I was 10, the company did a UK tour of a ballet called The Snow Queen by uh, David Bentley. And that has a, a reasonably large part for a child, uh, which I was fortunate to perform. And what was really interesting is that I felt at that point that I was getting a taste of what it was actually like to be a dancer in my infinite wisdom as a 10 year old. And um, I loved the touring aspect of it. And I felt that the the atmosphere in the company was fantastic. It, I would say it's, uh, it felt a little bit like running away with the circus. I thought these guys are just out here having the time of their lives, they're dancing and they're all great friends. And I just thought it was brilliant. Um, and I decided then this is what I want to do with my life. And my parents are brilliant. You know, they've supported me with, with all of this stuff. Um, neither of them are dancers. Neither of them have an arts background at all. And they were, they had this kind of, um, this parallel conversation going, oh, this is great, you know, and you're loving it. So it's really important that you, you pursue it and everything, but you need to think about if this is what you're doing with your life. And as a 10 year old, you, I don't think you really understand that. And my parents had done a brilliant job actually of saying, this might not happen for you. You know, it's very difficult to make this your career. Um, so I was really encouraged to, to take my academic work very, very seriously. And I did the entrance exams for some of the local, um, you know, highly rated academic schools. And fortunately, I, I was accepted into some of those. So at 10 years old, I had options for what I was going to do with my secondary education. But of course, I went, I was uh, accepted into the Royal Ballet School. So off I went. I had the time of my life there for five years. I thought it was brilliant. It's a boarding school. I had a, a really good bunch of people in my year group. I loved it. I was uh, never particularly successful at the school in terms of uh, feeling like I was one of the favourites in the, in the, um, from the teacher's perspectives or being cast in particularly important roles in any of the school performances or anything like that. Uh, but I did make it all the way through the school. Some students are, uh, you have an annual assessment. So basically you audition to get into the next year of the school every year. Uh, and I did pass all of those assessments. And at 16, I went into the, what they call the upper school. It's essentially the sixth form part of the school. Um, and at that point, I started to, to hate being in school. I still loved performing and I loved dancing, but I think um, it's that kind of teenage arrogance of you know it all and you know better. And uh, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm done with school. And I, um, I was enjoying it, but I, I just, I didn't want to be in school anymore. From Royal Ballet School onward, what, what happened? How did you transition to the professional ranks? And is, is that... Is there an attrition rate there? Is there a typical sort of number that would fall off the the um, the, the conveyor belt there, or is that is that is it an, normally a pass to professionalism? 
Uh, I'm not sure. I don't have any figures for that. Uh, I think there are certainly people that um, go all the way through a vocational training program and don't um, work as dancers at all. So the Royal Ballet School is very, very much focused towards classical ballet. Um, and I think it's a, a different environment now to the environment that I trained in over 20 years ago, which uh, almost ignored the fact that there were other forms of dance around. Um, so at that point, it was understood that not everyone in that year group would work in a classical ballet company. Um, but that was very much the target. Some of my uh, contemporaries in my year group went on and had fantastic careers in contemporary dance companies. Um, I think for men it's possibly easier because there are just simply fewer of us in the industry or, or, or rather training to get into the industry. I think uh, for the ladies it's um, it's harder to get into those kind of vocational schools in the first place um, and there are, there are just there's more competition. Um, so for me what happened is when I was uh, 17 I had the opportunity to go back to Birmingham Royal Ballet as an extra and what was really a relief actually is that I still loved it. Um, I, I, I still loved the atmosphere in this company. It still had, you know, this, um, what would that be, gosh, uh, seven, eight years later, uh, it still had this very, very friendly, family, fun atmosphere. And I thought, great, that's what I want to do. Um, and I haven't wasted the past seven years working towards it because actually that company had always been my focus. I had always wanted to work there. Uh, and obviously, you, you know, you understand that having a single goal like that is, um, it's unlikely to happen, really. But anyway, I got to, I did this UK tour um, with the company at 17 and coming to the end of that tour, I asked the company, look, I want to work here, can I have a job? And they said, <laughs> they said, no, you're you're not what we're looking for but you have another year mm. in the school don't you so you know you can go back and you can audition um in various companies you'll you will find something and i just thought how was that um, how did you respond to that well i i was um i was an arrogant teenager who who didn't want to be in the school anymore i thought you know i the stuff i'm learning in the school i can maybe i can just learn that doing doing the job so learning about doing the job let's just do it um, and so I, I, I went away and I carried on auditioning. Now, I was lucky that, uh, you know, I'd had this model of two older brothers who had gone off and worked in other countries. You know, it can be a, a really daunting thing for a teenager to do. But, of course, my brothers had done it. Why, why shouldn't I? So, you know, I went off and I auditioned in um, Germany and I auditioned in Sweden and um, various places. And I actually never got, uh, never got offered a job from an audition anywhere, starting to, you know, go, oh, I don't know, this is going to be hard. And, um, but I did have another year scheduled at the school. So I had, um, I was all set to go back for what would be my final year in the school. You know, I arranged accommodation in London, which is expensive. Um, mm. And I'd actually just been there, I'd been on holiday with my family and we came back home and there was a message on the the answering machine and it was from the director of Birmingham Royal Ballet and he essentially said um can you call me 
So I called him instantly. I think it was about 10 o'clock at night or something. I, just, I called him instantly. And um, he said, listen, do you still want that job? And I said, yes, of course I do. Um, when do you want me to start? And he said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? Uh, I said, well, um, I'm supposed to be getting, I'm supposed to be getting my hair dyed. I had, um, you know, as a fairly standard teenager stuff, I tried to bleach my hair and it had gone a very, very strange colour. Um, so I thought, well, I, I'm not going to go and start my job with this ridiculous hair. So I wanted to sort that out. And I said, um, I'm supposed to be going back to school. And he said, yeah, I haven't been able to to contact the school because normally what would happen in that process is that the director of one of the Royal Ballet companies would talk to the director of the Royal Ballet School and say, we've got this job, we need to see if we can recruit somebody. And they'd have this conversation about who might be suitable and so on. Um, and I think possibly quite fortunate for me because I wasn't one of the favourite in the school um, but I had kind of uh, made an impression with the company when I was working with them as an extra and I'd made it very very clear that that was where I wanted to be and um, of course it's uh, for any employer you want to employ somebody that wants to be working for you not just somebody that wants to do work in, in that area they want specifically to work in that organization so I had that to my advantage um, and so the director at that time hadn't been able to contact the school so I actually had the satisfaction of going in and telling the director of the school that I wasn't coming back and it's probably one of the things I've enjoyed most in life actually because I, I didn't want to go back it's a wonderful place and I had a, a great time there but I I was just really satisfied to be able to go and tell them well no I'm not I'm not coming back Actually, I'm going to go and get on with this thing that I've been training for. That's that's, that's really cool. Uh, but it, how does it work? Then do you get do you get offered a job? Um, and is it is it a permanent employee, or do you get offered a one year contract, a bit like a one year extension, and or a bit like the the Royal Ballet School where you have to audition each year, or is that a job for the your life, as in terms of your your dancing? Um, viability so um in in birmingham royal ballet we have a sort of probationary period a probationary year um where you of course need to show that you're a good fit for the company and that you you work properly beyond that we're on a kind of rolling contract so we're f employed full-time um we we have scheduled holiday that's one thing that's different about our industry of course is that we don't have the flexibility to take our leave whenever we would like to. It's very much scheduled for us. Um, but yeah, the I'm I'm I've been on the same contract now since I was uh, eighteen, effectively. And that um, if people come and go from the company, it's almost always of their own volition. Uh, and we have a mm. we have quite a a good employee retention rate, I think. People come and, and they stay and they spend a long, long time working with this company. And it's um, we're a very, very strong unit in that way, which is uh, is very helpful, I think. And I think part of that is this touring lifestyle that we have. We're very close. We have to get on with each other. Um, and we work very, very closely together. It's a, quite an intense environment. You know, we do on average around about 150 shows a year. Um, and I think most years we'll do something like 10, 12 different productions over the course of that season. So we perform a lot and we also rehearse a lot. So uh, we're in each other's faces quite a lot. 
And of course, uh, we have quite an international um, group of dancers. So, I mean, my wife, for example, uh, came from Canada at 18. And for a lot of these people, they're coming to a, a foreign city and they don't have a lot of time to make friends out of the workplace. So uh, I think that we have a responsibility to, to help those people out and make sure that they're comfortable and they're happy. And um, these days I find myself talking to people about how when, when they join the company about how they need to set up their council tax or how they can rig up the Internet in their apartment or whatever, because it's hard you know my my wife came from canada and had no idea that you needed a license to watch tv why why would people know these things but of course if if people are happy and settled then they they're able to work better so it's uh, it's in the interest of the organisation as well and and so that's that's leading me to to think about character and attitude as much as style of dance that, that you can you can produce. You've got the technical ability to, to to perform on stage at a at a certain level in a certain way. Um, I'm now thinking of, uh, of one of our previous guests, Tess Morris Patterson, who is an astronaut in training, where they spend an awful lot of time being drilled or assessed on whether they have the right attitude, the right character. Because when you're going to be stuck in a a lunar module. Uh, with three people in close proximity, you've got to get on uh, and you've got to be able to problem solve, work together, work constructively. And I'm interested to know how that works in a ballet company where the blend of characters uh, is important for you to manage that, but you you need to have that maverick, but you also need to have uh, people that can get on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is an intense environment and it requires a lot from each individual um of course you know people are different and the the most important characteristic i think or, or the most important factor is that you have to love it or you have to love enough about it to make it uh doable for you of course it's a job there are there are things about it sometimes that just you know like any job, they just suck at that moment, or um, or you know, it's not the way you want things to be. But you've just got to suck it up and deal with it. Really, you just got to get on with it. It might be um, a particular ballet that you just don't enjoy doing, or your role in that ballet is just it just doesn't feel particularly rewarding. Um, and that's where where the the motivation is um, is something else. You know, the motivation is oh, I was, you know, I need to do this because it's my job, as opposed to um, that more intrinsic kind of personal side where you're going, I love this and I absolutely love this role or, or this bit of music just really inspires me. Um, so it's the times where it's where it's just a job. I, I think that is where the the function of the company as a unit is really important because you're one part of this unit and it, it might not feel like your your role in that machine at that particular time is um, is valuable or is inspiring to you, um, but it has to happen. And it's you know when it's mm. when it does boil down that it's just a job. You have a responsibility to your colleagues there. And I have to say, over twenty years, of course, there's been times where um, I've really had to scratch around sometimes for the motivation and the reason to get up and go to work 
or, or to to go and train to keep myself uh, up to scratch. It, you know, if we're doing a, a six, seven, eight week tour, uh, nine, 10, 11 shows a week of a show that I simply don't like. Sometimes it's a challenge <laughs> to find that and how do you How do you... How do you create that? Because it's not something you can just go... Th- you, can, you can't just mark the movements on stage in front of an audience. You've got to perform it. You've got to create... Your, your worst level has still got to be good enough. Uh, how, do you, <laughs> how do you get your head around that? Uh, for me, when I'm actually in a performance and there's an audience, uh, I, I could count in 20 years on one hand the times where I haven't felt it and it's really been an uphill struggle uh, to, to really push that performance through and I you know I reckon I've done three and a half thousand shows in my career so I think that speaks about um, the just that this inherent desire to get out there and do it this is what i do it's what i love doing and once i get out there in front of an audience it's going to happen uh, it's more about the times when you're going into rehearse when you're turning up for your class in the morning um when it's that generally we would open a show on a tuesday or wednesday night and we'll have two shows on the wednesday two shows on the thursday perhaps on the friday we might not have a show in the afternoon um and it's when you've got to turn up and rehearse on those kind of things and you're exhausted, it's the last thing you want to be doing. Um, those are the times where I think it's it's harder to motivate myself. Um, and of course, the motivation has changed over the course of my career. When I'm a young dancer, I, I, I felt like there was a lot more to prove to other people. You know, you're trying to assert yourself uh, and demonstrate to your boss and the people that make decisions about your career you're trying to prove to them what you can do show them you know maybe something that they've missed about you and you're trying to live up to what you have always aspired to be and actually for me it was quite interesting because I I had only ever wanted to be in this company part of my my dream was never actually to be the star of the show to be a principal dancer that just didn't factor in my my thinking I just wanted to do this job with this company and it took a little while actually when I joined the company to go well I've done that so so what's next like I'm here I can't just sit here being a part of the company what's the next goal what's the next ambition um and that it was kind of it was quite quite a long time I think for me um I wouldn't say I struggled with it, but it was kind of a question. I knew I, I wanted to dance. Of course, what happens is some people get there and they get into a company and that's always been the goal. And then they get there and they kind of go, well, I've done that, actually. I, I don't want to keep doing it. And they go off and do something else entirely. I do see that sometimes. Um, and, and fair play to those people, because the worst thing would be to keep slogging away at something that's really intense that you just have no desire to be doing at all. Um, but I, I started choreographing. That was a creative outlet for me. Um, I should say as well that that it was always going to be unrealistic for me to be in a company of this standard and to be the the star in the front. I you know I don't have necessarily the physical attributes for that. Um, so 
I've always kind of known that and I think possibly not being the star performer in school throughout had kind of set me up for that a little bit as well. So I knew that the kind of um, the discipline and the, the reliability and those kind of qualities were going to uh, make me a, a good employee. What do you mean by the physical attributes? Is that a stature thing? Or is that the ability to produce certain moves? Um, what, what is that? A, a bit of both, yeah. And of course, there's a, those two things are also intertwined up to a point. So it's um, anything, you know, the shape of a leg or to have the, the nice shaped feet, all of those things. I don't think I have anything terrible. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't be in this job. But there are certainly people who have just beautiful bodies, right? And essentially we are an aesthetic art form. Um, this company, I have to say, is uh, it, we don't have some of those kind of... St- you hear some terrible stories about companies having really strict policies, you know, all the dancers must be the same shape and must be the same height. And yeah, look, it does create a beautiful effect when you see all those dancers standing next to each other. But what a short-sighted approach I think that is to overlook some of the qualities that somebody can bring that maybe their body doesn't necessarily fit your mould. But there, you know, to say that they can't connect and communicate with an audience and, and produce um, a real experience for an audience, I think is, yeah, that's questionable. And um, well, it's not even questionable, it's just not true. We, we have, uh, I think, perhaps more variability if you like in our approach to to recruitment in that sense that's not to say that you know we don't have um uh there's certain limits you know your body has to be able to do certain things uh to be able to do the the work that we do as a company and some of those things for the real star performers my body simply won't do and it certainly won't do them in in a way that's beautiful or (laughs) attractive enough um in relation to some of the other people that, that, you know, could do those roles. And I'm okay with that. You know, I think my, my value to the performance and to the organisation um, comes in, in different ways. And the reason we got in contact with each other and, and the early conversations that we had, it wasn't just about the body performing and delivering. Um, you talked to me a little bit about when you took on the responsibility of being first soloist or certain types of dances that you you had a bit of a block. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I increasingly over time, and I think this is part of, um, this is related to my own experience definitely of of being a dancer and where my performance limitations are. Um, And all of us in any kind of performance, we're looking at, at how can we improve our own performance and as a choreographer, I'm also looking at how I can improve the performance of the people that I'm choreographing on. Very often, that's an, an interpersonal thing. You know, it's how do you how do you get the best from that dancer through the relationship that you have with them in the studio and your just way of being. But I started to notice that um, that dancers approached stressful situations if you like or or a stressful role a challenging role in different ways so some people would be laughing and joking around on stage until the moment the curtain went up other people like to get um very much into their particular uh perhaps quiet obviously very focused mindset where it's kind of clear that you don't go and interrupt them and um 
it's that that kind of individual zone of optimum functioning really and, and you see what that is for yourself so with me and and my position in the company i get called on to dance solo roles um as well as you know obviously performing part of a group and there's a particular role for me that is more at the virtuoso end of my abilities if you like and i think well they've asked me to do this role so they must think that i can do it so i'm going to do it and i'm going to do it well so there are particular uh, sequences in it that really are going to require a lot of work and a lot of really specific practice for that particular movement that particular skill so with this particular role i will practice it um in a really really deliberate and structured way this purposeful practice thing every day and i'll see these incremental improvements in my ability to execute those particular moves and the first time i did this i found that a week before i was due to perform it i uh, experienced what i now know is skill loss syndrome it became clear to me subsequently that that had to be a psychological factor because i knew that i could physically do it and when this ballet came back a few years later we started performing that again the same thing happened because my approach that time was look i struggled with this last time i'm going to absolutely nail it this time and the same thing happened and i just thought right i need to get to the bottom of this and i had also observed some of our other um our other performers people who were really experienced dancers You've done really high pressure roles, um, really out of nowhere seem to really struggle and, uh, and suffer from, you know, real crippling nerves before a performance. And I just thought, I-, I need to understand this because it hadn't been part of my training. It hadn't been part of my experience. We hadn't had um, any uh, training about psychological skills but we hadn't had any of that so it was kind of new to me and I was just looking at what I was observing and I thought I really have to understand that so that I can be better and then also uh, I can make other people kind of deal with these situations I can give them the the help that maybe can propel their career to, to higher levels. So, so what happened a week before uh, you started to forget the moves or did you start to get wound up about it? Uh, talk me through what happened there all the way through to could you deliver that on stage? So the short answer is I still don't know about that particular case. Uh, it'd be interesting now because now I, I have a little bit more knowledge about how I, I could address that issue when it happens. Um, and I think that has I've employed that in other roles, other stressful or challenging roles that I've danced since. And it seems to work quite well for me now. Um, What happens in that case is still unexplained to me. I, I, the solo that I'm I'm thinking about starts with a very, very difficult step. And um, I think what happens with a lot of these things, it's it's a a really, um, uh, a big jump. And I think what I tend to do is I go at it with too much force. And so my ability to control it, um, it is not there anymore. And also, I think that the reason that force builds up is because I've got comfortable with the step and I feel like I'm on top of the, the technical execution of it. 
and then you just put too much effort into the step. It is that simple, but the, my ability to regulate that effort is what seems to disappear completely. Um, and I know that I, I can film myself practicing it and doing the, the step, and I can see on the video, but to get that cognitive process to correct it at that point, just there's a, a disconnect there, and I'm not still not sure what that is. And, and were you able to overcome that particular block in that instance? Uh, I presume you've had to had to step out on stage and deliver that step. Oh yeah, and I hate it. <laughs> I hate doing it that particular role. Um, I, I I'm someone that loves a challenge, and so when that I would never now or, or at any point have gone and said, look, I have a problem with this role. I don't want to do it because they've given me that challenge to do. I'm going to do my absolute best to rise to it. Um, the last time that we performed that ballet, um, I was, so we, we will have several um, rotations of cast for each, for each show. And um, by that point, I was the, the first cast of that, which meant I was doing the opening nights of these shows. And um, I remember really, really clearly doing the opening night show at Sadler's Wells Theatre in London, which is a you know really, really important um, and prestigious dance theatre. Um, they have a very, very knowledgeable dance audience there. Um, and I thought, wow, this is this is high pressure, you know. And I, uh, I'm not sure what was different about that show, but that show, I nailed every step in that solo. And it's definitely the best that I've ever performed that solo. And I was so happy and so relieved because I thought, right, I think I finally cracked this. Um, and it was particularly satisfying, I think, because I felt the pressure of performing that opening night in that particular venue. Um, and th th there was a, a greater sense of external pressure there, whereas I would always try to give the best performance I can. By a a particular quirk, I was also scheduled to dance that solo the next afternoon in the matinee performance. And I just thought, brilliant, I can't wait to just go out and enjoy this solo now. It was the worst show I have ever done of, <laughs> of anything ever. And I just thought, right, that's it, that's it. I'm going to study this and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. It's probably too late for me to fix that particular role, but, but I, I need to know. I need to know what's going on here. Right. Okay. So it sounds as though you lent into the pressure there. You know, you had the, the, the responsibility of the, the, the first night, you had the responsibility of it being in Sadler, Sadler's Wells and the external reputation. You lent into that to, to get, the, uh, get the performance out. I can imagine how in the future that that would have allowed you to think, well, at least I, I, um, I can do it. I've done it. And, and the best indicator of me being able to be successful, that self-efficacy aspect, is that I've done it before, but you probably went too far. <laughs> I, I think it's possible, yeah. I was so frustrated. <laughs> and so that inspired you to study, did it? Yeah, so, um, I, I mean, that uh, as part of uh, a lot of things that I was seeing that, that really gave me the interest in the psychology of performance. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a football fan as well, I mean, we mentioned earlier I'm a Villa fan and I, I go to Villa Park and I see that team play fantastically well. Um, and then other days you go there and it, the, you can't work out what's so different. This is more or less the same bunch of 11 players. Why, why is this just not happening? And it, it, you know, 
it's not something to do with the opposition or um, in our case it's not to do with working in a different venue on a different stage surface or um, I just I really wanted to understand because there, there's this thing that you control the controllables right so uh, we know that our costume is right for example or we know that our pre-performance routine um, is going to be consistent to the best of our ability or you know we think that we know our selves and and do we really need to uh, psych ourselves up for a show do we need to be that kind of jokey relaxed thing these are things that I, I, I were never taught to me in my professional training but they're things you understand you just kind of learn as you go along but there's something else there and I, I wanted to get inside what that is what what can um, when everything else apparently is exactly the same, what is it that makes the difference to somebody's ability to perform? And what's really interesting to me is that there's not a lot of people working um, in dance in that area. There's a there's a brilliant lady called Lucy Clements who um, she works at Trinity Laban and also University of Chichester who's um, doing some brilliant, brilliant work in this area. Uh, and it may also be a, a money thing, but there's a lot of research more into sport performance. Um, and what I found uh, so far is that the, the basic principles of performance, I think, are universal, whether that's mm. that sport, you know, or, or dance, the kind of physical performance, or presumably in a kind of corporate environment. And of course, my area is physical performance. So for me... Uh, it's a little bit about somewhere where I can use my own experience to relate and understand, but not have to entirely lean on my own uh, experience. And has it helped you knowing about it? Because sometimes when I work with performers, uh, sometimes they'll just say, stop, I don't want to know anymore. And others want to want to dig a bit more so they understand it so that they can utilise it. N- knowing too much can be stifling in itself um, that, that there's a... It's an automatic performance as opposed to, as you were describing, controlling the performance up to a point where it then be- it becomes unmanageable. Um, what, have, you, have you learned anything through your studies that you've then applied to yourself and or to others in your responsibility as a choreographer? Definitely, definitely. And what's been really interesting is a lot of it is stuff that we, we know and we, we kind of seem to know it intuitively. Uh, and it's been interesting for me to have the literature confirm something that I was observing the whole time, perhaps without even realising it. So, for example, breathing techniques. We will see somebody, we'll be standing in the wings, and you see somebody preparing to make their uh, entrance, and their breathing patterns are exactly what you then go and read you know, in, about the psychological skills. And it never occurred to me, like, oh, yeah, this is actually, this is a real thing. You know, and I don't know if we've been taught those things. You observe it. So you see somebody make this exhalation before they go on stage. And I think it's a kind of learned behaviour from just observing other people do it. Um, and then you, you get into the the literature and go, oh, yeah, no, this is, this is a, an actual recognised and teachable skill. Um, so that side of it's been interesting to me. I think as well the um, the acceptance and the knowledge that people don't behave like textbooks everybody's individual 
So uh, the the factors, the individual factors at play, and the um, the situational and organisational factors at play, the the perhaps uh, the personal factors, those kind of um, psychosocial factors for people as well, recognising the individual impact and the differences for everybody uh, is very, very interesting. So there are very few universal things in this area. When I'm learning everything, you're going, oh, OK, yeah, this is this is great, but it's a theory. Even within our organisation of 60 or so dancers, I can see people, yeah, they, they really fit what I'm reading here. And then other people, no, it's just they really don't appear to fit this theory. It doesn't seem to work for them. And that, for me, is fascinating. And that's, mm. uh, I think it's the challenge of, um, I, I, I want to get into this as a career. This is what I would like to um, explore. And the fact that you're never going to get to the end of this, I think, is really, really interesting. You're only ever just going to keep learning and finding um, more facets to this as a research area, but along the way to be able to help people achieve more. I mean, that certainly rings true from everything I've experienced or, or learned over the years, that there are some fundamental principles that apply to everybody. And if you work hard, you need to recover, uh, etc. Um, but the the individual ultimately means that everything you ever do is an adaptation of a principle and that you're fitting it and you're creating a bespoke solution where it, it might just be a, a tweak from the norm. It could be completely different from the norm, but ultimately that then as a blend of different types of inter interventions for different people. And ultimately, probably you need individual support to get the most out of the individual. And you can't always do that. You can't do that if you're in a rowing boat and they've all got to pull at the same sort of pressure to make the boat go at a reasonable speed. And I would imagine that you can't necessarily manage workload just to fit the, the different uh, characters and physical attributes of a, of a dancer. Um, you're going to have to be able to perform under a degree of pressure if you're going to be a dancer. So that, that's, that, that sort of se separates the wheat from the chaff in that regard. Um, that's, that's fascinating that you've you've struck upon this, but you're um, you're striking out. Is that is that your ambition then to become a, a chartered psychologist and operating in in ballet? Um, at this point, I don't know, and uh, I'm still you know obviously quite early on in my my studies. I think if I'm um, I'm working on a, a BSc at the moment, um, which which is recognised, so I could go down that chartered route. Um, it's difficult for me to envisage at this point leaving dance behind. Um, partially because it's what I've always done. Um, but also, I do think it would be a shame to have all that experience. A lot of people don't have a 20-year career, and my career so far is still going strong, so hopefully it will be more than 20 years. Um, it would be a shame to, to put that experience aside and to not use it however I'm interested in in human performance um, I I've been fortunate to do a little bit of work with some elite sports people and it fascinates me it really absolutely fascinates me uh, to see some of the parallels 
um, and again those those differences what makes the specifics of one discipline actually quite different uh, and they I, I do think that those things tend to be quite limited broadly speaking the parallels are, are much greater um, and I think the the challenge of learning about other physical performance disciplines um, is great to me I, you know I'm interested in how the body works in conjunction with the mind to do amazing things um, and so I w- at this point I wouldn't want to sort of limit myself to dance but at the same time um, if you if you were to say to me look here's this great opportunity to go and um, contribute to, to the future of dance as an art form this is the art form that I love um, and it, it's where my kind of professional vocation is um, but I, I also really really love sport so the idea of working uh, with sports people for me is um, would be win-win and um, and how does that how was the transition from um, dancing to choreography and and it sounds like you're in part player manager at the moment <laughs> where you're still coming off the bench or you're still you're still uh, participating and dancing on stage but but you're acting behind the scenes as much as anything how was how did that transition begin and and uh, and how are you finding that so the the work that I do as a choreographer is um is really on a kind of project basis so um, I've been invited by Birmingham Royal Ballet to create work for the company I've produced work independently as well um I think think that to make that my sole profession is um is incredibly difficult uh i i liken it sometimes to saying i'm going to be a rock star i great write the songs uh play the guitars you know sing beautifully it's still incredibly hard to make a career that way um so i, I think creating movement is something that i will always do um, it's one of the things that I found myself doing during this period of, of lockdown where I can't be in a studio working with dancers or, or doing my job. I will still dance in the kitchen just for the sake of dancing. And it's not a, a passive thing that I do while I'm cooking. It's, it's a very deliberate activity. I'm going to go and move and explore movement. Um, so I think there's a compulsion there. The way that I started choreography, I think... Um, is quite common. We had um, some choreographic sort of classes in the Royal Ballet School, and I, I enjoyed that. And we had a we had choreographic competitions, which I sort of hated the idea that you were competing choreographically. I, I, I didn't really like that because the arts are obviously very subjective. And when I joined Birmingham Royal Ballet, we would have internal choreographic workshops which were just designed to um, give people the platform to create without the pressure of public performance um, so you can really just you know try ideas find your feet a little bit you don't know if choreography is something that you're into so just give it a shot and it doesn't really matter um, and the the director must have enjoyed the work that I was producing for those things so he gave me my first commission for the company which was in um, 2007 I created a, a short ballet for the company I think uh, just just under 20 minute ballet 
that we toured. And then I've created several things for the company since then. Um, and also in for other companies, other organisations, um, sometimes for some of the, the big pre-professional dance schools. That's been great. Um, choreographing and, and kind of co-producing independent shows uh, seemed like the, the next logical step. Um, I I chose a very, very difficult production, if you like, for my, for my first independent production. I worked with um, a jazz composer and we designed a narrative, a full length narrative evening ballet with live partially improvised jazz. Um, it, <laughs> How does that go? It was. Can you can you improvise? I mean, I presume you improvise ballet. You're well, skilled at that, but you've got to produce a quality performance and, and consistently. Well, this is it. So so being able to guarantee that the audience was getting something of a, a really high quality um, was the challenge with that. And actually, what we did in the end was the majority of the choreography was fixed and rehearsed, um, and that's partially because although I was working with really, really great dancers, as classical dancers, we tend not to really improvise and we tend to shy away from it. Um, we were not really comfortable with it in the way that a lot of contemporary dancers are. I was very, very keen to allow the musicians, those they're jazz musicians, and, and improvisation is such a, a large part and such um, an important part of what they do. I was keen to do that, but we structured the musical improvisations to be a very, very fixed length so that the choreography would sort of be less affected by that. And in terms of the choreography, uh, having improvised moments, they were also very, very structured. And we, we actually also gave the dancers a, a kind of code, a sort of um, the equivalent of a safe word, if you like. So when the dancer performed this move, the musician knew, oh, okay, we need to move out of this section now and go back to the rehearsed stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, which, which proved to work quite well. Uh, but, of, you know, despite having a great musicians and great dancers, you can't necessarily guarantee that it's going to be great for an audience for that long. So we had to kind of limit it. Um, but, you know, with that, with that show between myself and the composer, we, we did everything. We handled the ticketing. We, I was sewing um, turnips on trousers and stuff like that the day before the show. Uh, we really we took on everything. It was a success, but I, I needed I needed a break afterwards, and uh, I I never had more appreciation for uh, some of the departments that are part of the mechanics of our organisation. So, oh, okay, yeah. So this is actually what the marketing team do, and I never realised that our costume and wardrobe department had to do all this stuff as well. You know, it was a real eye opener for me, mm. uh, and I, well, I think hopefully people in the various departments of our organisation would agree that now I, I have a greater respect <laughs> and demonstrate that respect. And so what have you, what have you learned about uh, yourself as a choreographer? What, is it, what does it take to be effective in that space? I'm thinking of a parallel with a coach uh, in terms of communicating, but, but equally you would have creative aspects to You've got to create, but you've got to then convey that to other people. What have you learned about yourself I think initially it was quite um, daunting for me. I was um, I was a junior member of the company, and I had some of our star principal performers in the studio that I was. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so you were a junior. So, what? Well, how? Why were you 
spotted or selected as a as a choreographer at such a young age then? What happened there? What do they see in you? Well, there's actually relatively few uh, dancers demonstrate an interest in choreography in the first place. Okay. Um, so I think... I think the the fact that I was willing was a, a big part of it. Um, our our director at that time was a brilliant brilliant choreographer, um, and I think was keen to to provide those opportunities. And so my my mixture of willingness and uh, the potential that he identified there uh, earned me this opportunity. And I remember going to him and saying, "Look, how do I how do I work with these people?" And he gave me a, some kind of practical terms about knowing the um, characteristics of the individuals was very useful. But he just kind of said, be yourself, don't worry, you know, you're, you're in that role. It doesn't matter that you're at the lower level of the company and they're much senior, you know, this is just that, that role. And we're just not that kind of organisation where we have, you know, the, the star performers and they don't mix with the the kind of youngsters or the junior members we're just not that kind of organization you know we're all in it together which is um is different to some big ballet companies and i think that that certainly helped a lot but i came more i became more comfortable with that and i trusted my own abilities and i think one of the crucial things was uh the ability to say i've got this wrong so when you've spent two hours working on a particular sequence, a particular moment in the ballet, and you go home and you just go, this is not working. And um, and to be able to go back in the studio and say to the dancers, look, I don't like what we did yesterday, I've got it wrong. And then to either rework it or shelve it completely, to, to have the um, confidence to show your own weakness to the dancers is almost always... Um, useful <laughs> it's always you know it's a respect thing because sometimes you can feel it from the dancers that they know what you're doing is is not good you're having an off day or whatever and, and other times you of course really believe in it and they can't quite see it the same way that that you do so you have to earn their trust a little bit but also it's this thing of um of autonomy as well and it's it's a huge part of what makes the creative process so rewarding for me on both sides of that that if as a dancer you're told this is what you're going to do you're going to do this move on this count and you're going to do it exactly this way and that's the entire creative process it's nowhere near as rewarding um, as to have that feeling that your input is valued Um, and I think for me that's that's a very natural thing now to it wasn't necessarily always that way but to recognize that I'm working with brilliant brilliant dancers um and to allow those almost uh to engineer serendipity if you like so I very often go into the studio and I go I know how this thing starts and I know that um I know that we need to have a sequence here that travels and and perhaps I know that this is a duet or perhaps I know that this is 16 dancers moving completely in unison. I might know those things, but I very, very rarely know the precise movement until I get in the studio. So I'm very reliant on uh, the collaborative process with the dancers where I can see them. And it feels a little bit like sculpture. Sometimes, you know, you get the first 
um, the initiation of a movement, but you still don't know where it's going. And one dancer will just go somewhere and you go, yes, let's explore that. And, or, or you go, how did you do that? And some of these dancers perhaps would be more experienced in partnering work um, than I am. You know, I haven't, I haven't done those. I've never danced the Swan Lake Pardida, for example, let alone something that's perhaps a bit more um, uh, contemporary with different ways of moving. So I can really rely and, uh, and capitalise on their experience too. And so it does become this um, a, a very collaborative process, whereas I think when you're, you're young and you're starting out, you're perhaps a little bit more keen to have control over every single aspect of, uh, of the creation. Oh, I'm learning so much and I could talk to you all day because I think uh, well, it's not an area that I understand or um, appreciate and recognise, but can take so much from. Well, um, just last question then, Kit, what's next? Um, uh, beyond COVID and the uncertainty there, um, what, what's next for you personally, for Birmingham Royal Ballet? Uh, what's, the, what's the sort of next frontier or challenges ahead? Um, well, for us as a company... We had, um, I worked for the same director in Birmingham for 20 years, uh, David Bintley, who was a, a brilliant choreographer and had simply just always been the director of that company for me. Um, and we just at the start of this year um, have a new director, Carlos Acosta, who of course is a, mm. a hugely renowned and respected dancer. Um, and at the point where I found out we were going to have a change of director, I was looking at my own career and going, well, I've been doing this for 20 years um, and the sort of uncertainties of that change of boss uh, brought up a lot of really obvious questions for me. You know, is it time for me to move on? Do I want to prove myself to a new boss? How do I uh, illustrate to a new boss everything that I've done for 20 years when he hasn't seen it? He doesn't know. Um, does that matter? You know, do I have enough about me now to show him? that I'm valuable, all of those kind of really normal questions. And um, I, I quite quickly decided, well, yeah, I want to work for this guy. I want to I wanna see what I can learn from him. I want to experience that process of this really, really familiar organisation changing. I, wa I want to see, you know, how that happens. I want to see which of those changes work. I want to see perhaps where we've got potential in areas that we didn't realise we had uh, or exploiting potential that we hadn't done previously uh, uh, but also what doesn't work during that change period so that became very very interesting to me I also felt that um, despite you know I'm 37 now I'll be 38 this year for physical performers we know that that's pretty ancient um, I do feel like I, I, I'm still working at a high high level physically so I don't feel in, in those terms it's time. Um, so, of course, a lot of the the plans that Carlos had for the company have kind of been at least temporarily derailed um, with this COVID situation. So we're looking very much to, to get through that, to remain uh, creative, to get back to performing as soon as it's safe for us to do so. And I'm increasingly looking forward to doing that. Um, I'm looking to see if some of the... I had a couple of choreographic projects that were shelved um, because of this situation. 
I'm looking forward to seeing if we can uh, get those back on uh, on schedule to be performed at some point. Um, I am looking to cre- uh, finish my psychology degree. That's um, I've got another another two years of that BSc. Of course, I have to do that distance learning because I I work six days a week, so it's part time. Um, and just continue continue learning. I think uh, there's so much opportunity now for me to get more experience. You know, talking, of course, to people like yourself, um, I'm increasing my kind of network in quite an organic way, which is nice um, within sport and uh, within the psychology field, which is very, very nice. I'm learning huge amounts every day. I'm finally getting uh, comfortable reading uh, research reports and so on, getting my head around that kind of thing. Uh, so the academia um, is getting more more comfortable now, uh, and the applied side is making a lot more sense. Um, so yeah, just continued growth, continued performance, um, and and we'll see at this point. Oh, well, fantastic! Well, I'm I'm wishing you all the best. It's been fascinating to hear about your experiences and your and your journey, but also how your in itself fascinated to explore human performance as a as a concept and i'm wondering uh wondering about how i can apply the principle of engineering serendipity to my by afternoon now but thank you so much for joining us kit thanks very much for having me you can follow kit on twitter at kit holder you can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Check out our LinkedIn page, www.linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash supporting hyphen champions. 